0: Hi there, welcome along to the latest special episode of the High Performance Podcast to celebrate the Rugby League World Cup. And today, Professor Damien Hughes, who has for years worked with elite rugby league coaches, players and clubs, is sitting down with a true legend of the game. Here's what you can expect on today's episode.
1: No one's ever taken a, a great challenge and 100% said to himself, I'm absolutely gonna nail this. That's the reason why we have big challenges because there's a, a doubt of whether you can do it or not. But the first step in doing it is believing in yourself. And that's what I l- learned that day. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was gonna be. I think that's what always happens when we front up to big fears. Uh, and, that, and that basically is what courage is, isn't it? I, I think courage is fronting up to fear. It's about leaning into it rather than taking the easy option like I did the first time round. I think the more decisions in our, our life that we make hard decisions, I think our easier our lives become, but I think the more easy decisions we make, the harder our, our lives become. Do you know what? My dad had the best mindset. He refused to let anybody like box him in. You know, like say if you let the oncologist say oh, you've got three months left left to live, I'm not having that. I thought what an attitude that is to have. So I applied that attitude to the last couple of years of my career. You know, I wouldn't let a pundit I, I A player gone before me, a coach or anyone dictate, you know, what I could do in the backstage of my career. I firmly believe by him doing that, the last couple of years, I played my best rugby as a a player. You know, I was like the Leeds Rhinos player a year twice, nearly one of the Man of Steel in the dream team. It all came together for me and that for me showed out of a really crappy negative situation. Can draw a positive out of it. And for me, it inspired me right to death.
0: So today, Damien is talking to Jamie Peacock. Like You will know him as someone who had an amazing rugby league career, playing for Leeds Rhinos and the Bradford Bulls in the Super League. He captained Great Britain and England at international level. Um, he retired seven or eight years ago, um, and then he went on to become a director of rugby. And he also is a motivational speaker. He's a, a leadership mentor. And he's an all-round impressive individual. There is so much that I know you're going to get from this episode. You'll hear Jamie talk about time to get off the bus, which is his mantra that goes all the way back to when he was a teenager and he was too nervous to get off the bus for his Bradford Bulls trial. Um, You'll talk about the way he breaks up his day into a series of decisions, big ones or small ones, easy ones or hard ones. And also the fact that the best people in his world just deliver on their word. I love the phrase... I don't believe what you say because I see what you do. And that resonated when I listened to this episode. Um, He talks about personal responsibility as well, which we discuss a lot on the High Performance Podcast and not doubling up on your errors. It's a really, really brilliant conversation. Thank you so much to Professor Damien Hughes for bringing his usual charm and knowledge and empathy to this conversation. Um, this is to celebrate the fact that it's the Rugby League World Cup at the moment. And don't forget, actually, you can hear our conversation with the England coach, Sean Wayne, which was part of the very early episodes of the High Performance Podcast. So take a listen to that one in the archives, is well worth it. But right now, here he is, rugby league legend, Jamie Peacock, talking to our very own Professor Damian Hughes on this Rugby League World Cup special for the High Performance Podcast.
3: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
4: So, Jamie, we're going to start this interview with the question we ask everybody. What is high performance to you? High performance to me would be kind
1: of a group of individuals who have no ego about themselves and just fully commit themselves to each other, to the cause and what they want to succeed with and take personal responsibility for their own performances, what they commit to the group and what they commit to the cause as well. And I think if you get a critical mass of people doing that within a team, then you've got an high performance environment.
4: So we're going to come back to that in a moment, but I want to take you onto the bus going around Oddsall Stadium, right? Yeah, You're yeah. 19 years of age. you sat on the top deck of the bus. You've been called for your first trial at Bradford Bulls. Tell me about the moment when you pull up.
1: Even though I have had a successful rugby league career, you know, Captain England and Great Britain, I was probably never earmarked to do that kind of thing. Didn't have the most natural talent as a player, but I played as a five-year-old all the way through to 16. And during that time, I was never picked for a a Leeds City side, a Yorkshire side, a England side, i amateur, never good enough. I'm 16 years old, old, scouts come in. Not one scout interested in signing me, okay? Which means, obviously, not knocks your confidence. You're self-aware enough to know I'm not the greatest player here. Will I ever make it professional? Probably not. But I kept plugging away. I love playing rugby league. I love playing with my mates. I love the camaraderie it gives you. 18 and a half years old, I start to get watched by the Bradford Bulls. So the Bradford Bulls scouts start to come down and watch me play for my amateur club then they speak to my coach speak to my dad and they want me to come up and train for the first team so news gets back to me i'm thinking this is sliding doors moment change your life forever but loads of self-doubt inside of me because i think to myself, I, i've got to train with people i watch on tv you know my heroes who play on bbc on sky sports Big challenge is this, which meant some racked with self doubt. But I'm thinking, I've got to do it. You've got to take this opportunity. So the following week, I catch the bus from where I live in Leeds up to Bradford, 20, 20 to 30 minute journey up towards the stadium. And on this journey, I get more and more nervous and more and more self talk makes the it's negative self talk, gets the uh, self doubt bigger and bigger and bigger.
4: And what were you saying to
1: yourself? Just that this is it's, um, too big for you. This is, you know, it's going to be really good. People are going to laugh at you. You're not going to be good enough to play with these first-team players, all these kind of negative connotations that you get, I think, when you've got big challenges in front of you, and I think, now I know that having big challenges can bring negative thoughts but when you have a big challenge in front of you that's the best place to be right because if you can overcome it that's generally where you get the most satisfaction or accomplishment in life but as a 19 year old I'm not thinking about that on this bus I'm thinking this is a huge challenge Uh, I'm not sure I'm good enough to do it easiest thing for me to do I think is just stay on the bus and normally I'll be all right I'll just do that I'll bottle it and that's what I did bottled it and stayed on the bus now stayed on it till it terminated in Halifax
4: So what what were you saying to yourself at that moment when it's gone past your stop? Just I think
1: uh, you're upset with yourself, angry because you're taking the easy option. I've taken the easy option. There's two options at that point when I get to my bus stop outside Ulster Stadium. One is get off the bus, meet the challenge, go train with the first team. The other one is be cowardly and and sit on the bus and let self-doubt get the better of you. And I, I chose the second option and it makes me a bit like hot flush now thinking about it actually. Inside thinking about taking that easier option, but that's the one I took. And, and that's why I ended up in Halifax rather than Bradford feeling embarrassed, uh, feeling upset and thinking, what do I do next? So what do I do next is bring my dad. He's upset. <laughs> I st- he, he, he's really upset. You know, so like, teach me some new swear words, basically, he's <laughs> upset. <laughs> but he does, you know, have a go at me and said, you know what? I'm going to try and get you another chance next week. I'll speak to the coach. And, you know, we'll see what we can do next week. Catch the bus home and we'll have a chat. So that left me at a bus stop waiting for the 508 bus to get back again. And in that point then, I, I begin to think a lot about, you know, what I've done and, you know, the option I've taken. And if I get another chance, what do I need to do? And inside me, I, I'm thinking, do you know what? I, I have people around me who believe me. I, clearly my dad does because he wants to give me another chance. The scouts do, the coaches do. But it's me who has to believe in this, or it's me who's going to have to overcome this self-doubt, take the difficult option, not the easy one, and I'll give myself a chance of being a professional player and change my life forever. So I'll come up with a kind of mantra, time to get off the bus. I think it's good Mantras are great for enforcing a mindset. I catch the bus home, speak to my dad, they said they'll give you a chance the following week. Um, the following week, I get on the bus, but I keep, keep telling myself, time to get off the bus, just believe in yourself, time to get off the bus, believe in yourself get to my bus stop and I go train with the Brava Bulls first team.
4: So you've got off the bus, but you've still got the nerves, the apprehension. What was that experience like? So the experience for me wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. That's the
1: overriding feeling from it. You know, I'm nervous getting off the bus, but I've made the first step. I've made the most difficult part of it. I've got off the bus, which means I'm going to train with them now. And then whatever happens after that is a bonus. So I decided to slip my way in, be quiet, be respectful and just train and try doing my best around everybody. And my feeling after the training session was, I think I've learned a lesson in life there that you just need to believe in yourself and you've done the right thing. And I, I had more satisfaction with taking the more difficult option than the easy one, walking away from there. And at that point, 19 years old, I think it, it'd be too much to say. I, I said to myself, that's a great life lesson. But as you look back on it, you think it is a great life lesson. Yeah, yeah. What showed to me was that, with big challenges comes self doubt, it should do. I, no one's ever taken a, a great challenge and 100% said to myself, I'm absolutely going to nail this. That's the reason why we have big challenges, because there's a, a doubt of whether you can do it or not. But the first step in doing it is believing in yourself. And that's what I learned that day. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. I think that's what always happens when we front up to big fears. Uh, and And that basically is what courage is, isn't it? I think courage is fronting up to fear.
4: It's about leaning into it rather than taking the easy option like I did the first time around. So tell us then about when you go in there, the second and the third and the fourth time, because you going into a culture as well, for people that don't remember that era, that was a pretty hard-nosed, winning, successful culture. So you going in at 19 as a relative novice must have been, like, again, scaling Everest.
1: Yeah, for me personally, it was my own Everest. We all have our own Everest. And I think for me, I was probably self-aware enough to know that I have to be quiet. I have to fit in and I have to try to be respectful at first, you know, I have to earn my stripes I have to earn the respect of these yeah. players first because I'm basically a, a nobody 19 year old has come from the amateur and been given a chance, so what I'm going to do, I'm just going to work really hard because everyone seems to be working hard here I know in rugby league that, that's almost like an essential part of it, and I know I can bring that, I can bring hard work, I'm, I'm, I'm not skillful as these players, not in a million years but I can work as hard as them, I can give 100% and be enthusiastic so that's what I brought to it and I I think that attitude over a period of days, weeks, and months endeared me to some of the more senior players within that team. Because I remember there were other players who were my age and, and got into the team, maybe a bit louder, probably a bit bigger personalities than me. Um, the senior first team probably didn't engage as much with them as they did with me. Or I'm not saying they sat next to me being my best mate, but they give me respect, and I think yeah. that's what you're trying to learn for when you first go into that kind of high-performance environment, right? You're to respect from people. And I, I thought to myself, I earn respect here through knowing my place, working really hard and just being respectful of myself to other people. And I think that stood me in, in good stead with that
4: group of players. And that reminds me of when we interviewed on the podcast, the chef, Marcus Waring, and he spoke to us around how he'd gone from Southport down to London and he was working in Michelin Star Kitchens. And the advice his dad had given was, don't look for the average look for the best in that kitchen and go and hang around with them because you hang around with them. You'll learn the good habits. So who was it that you were quietly watching when you first went? As,
1: that's great advice that from from his dad. Brilliant advice. I mean, I definitely saw that. So there's a couple of players, probably three or four. Um, I would say there was, you know, Brian McDermott, James Laws Bernard Dwight Mike Forshaw, and I watched these players and they were skillful but they would always be into doing extras or if they played and weren't happy with the game they'd be the first one in the gym on the rower they'd be training harder than anybody else they give 100% in whatever they did they looked like winners in the team and I could tell they were the most respected within the team because of how hard they worked. Jimmy Laws you know super skillful yeah. player but the other three I don't think they'll mind me saying that they were, they were averagely skillful but you know it's super in, in hard work, effort and enthusiasm and, and endeavour and grit. And I always watched skillful players and I thought, I'm really going to struggle to replicate what they're doing. But for me, the grit and hard work and working harder than anybody else, that's a choice again. So if that's a choice, I, I can make that choice and I, I can make a difference. So being around them, I feel fortunate now when I look back on my career, when I get asked who had the most influence, I would say that kind of group of players, because I learned through their behaviours, how to maximise what talent I had and and where potentially I could get in front of players who had more natural rugby IQ and
4: talent than myself. So what was the first time in that culture then that you truly felt accepted or that you belonged?
1: when Jimmy Laws was the hooker and Jimmy used to pass you the ball in the games, right? Because Jimmy passed the ball to the people who respect him more often than not and he'd give it to you in the good situations. He was rarely the captain of the team, Robbie Paul's captain of the team, great player too, but Jimmy was like the, the emotional heart of the team, the beating heart of the team. And for me, I felt like when he was giving the ball and other players were talking to me like I was a peer rather than a 19 year old. But that's generally when you feel accepted within there and you think, you know what, um, I've not made it here, but I'm doing the right things. You know, whatever I'm doing at training or my attitude I'm bringing to training means that these now respect me in, yeah. in, in what I do. So for me, that was it. And I, I always prided on myself. And when I got into the first team, I thought, I'm just going to do all those pieces of action that don't require talent. You know, you just require effort to do that. And I thought, I can I can ace these. Um, like
4: well, Give us some examples. Just
1: for example, so in Rugby League, if you're defending your own try line, so you, you, you're all tired. You've been defending four, five, six sets, four, five, six tackles. Remember, everyone's been involved. It's high intensity because you're stopping them from scoring. They're quite close to your try line. They kick through, ball goes over. So we get the ball back, a tap on the 20. Being the first person there to take that carry. That that's an effort area for me. Or say we get the ball turned over five metres out from our try line, five metres out from touch line. the opposition are all frothing at the mouth, trying to get up as quick as you can. Well, I can make the decision to take the ball there. All that takes is just a bit of courage and knowing I'm probably going to get hurt, but it's doing the right thing by the team. And the more that you make those decisions to do that, the more people respect you because lots of people have talent in rugby, but to really push yourself to... Get into a situation where you can get uh, hurt when you're physically tired, I think it's a skill in itself. And I thought they're they're like areas that I can be good at over other people. And that starts with, you can only do that if you train really hard because you need to be fitter than other players. So let's go into
4: that decision-making then, because I think I've said this to you before over the 150 plus episodes on this podcast, people won't know this, but I've been quoting you indirectly based on having been lucky enough to work with you and understand your approach to life. So I talk about dividing life up into easy and hard decisions. And I am going to shamelessly say I've stolen that from you. Yeah. So tell us about your decision-making and how you divide them up.
1: So Damien, on that, I've stolen a lot of ideas from you. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I think,
0: we're all, equal, but,
1: yeah, you're yeah. equal. I really, it's really nice to say that. Look, I mean, for me, I, I think in our lives, most moments we get into, we have an hard or an easy decision. For example, getting off the bus, that's really definite. It's a really definite one. But I think we have lots of those all the time within our lives. So a decision that might be a little bit more difficult to do, or one that's a little bit easier to do. So for example, when I used to go running, I'd always make a decision as a player not to have any music on, because when I'm playing, no one's playing rocket to me and no one's making it any easier to me. So why why would I want to run with any music on? Because that's just an easier decision. I'm making it easier for myself. But those little decisions are all around our lives, you know, whether we want to decide to get fast food or, or not, or make the, say we, we have a drink, we're hungover, Next day, we've always got two decisions. Do we cook something healthy or do we get on delivery? And I think the more decisions in our, our life that we make hard decisions, I think our easier our lives become. But I think the more easy decisions we make, the, the harder our, our lives become on the compound impact of those. And I think those decisions are done day to day. And I think as well that, The bigger chain you build up of hard decisions, they almost become easier to make because they just become you as a person along the way. And I think it's that really thinking to yourself, which is going to be most beneficial for me, probably the hardest one to do right now, but do this a few times, few days in a row, then I'll get to the
4: point where this is just a way it's not even a decision anymore. It just happens. And I think that's the key. Give us some insights then into you now as an elite player that you established at Bradford, you go on to be successful at Leeds. What were the kind of habits, the hard decisions that you were making every day that now you look back on it, you go, actually, they were essential.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're all around you. It's really definite as a professional sports person, I think, the hard and easy decision. So, look, an example would be in professional rugby league, being fit's a non-negotiable part of it, which means we, we do a lot of fitness training, which means we do a lot of running to cones. Yeah, And lots of people make an easy decision to pull up one metre short or two metres short from the cone. And you think, well, that doesn't matter, just doing it once. But you count that up over a training session, over a week, over a season. That's just not one step you're cheating on. That's thousands of steps you're cheating on. So for me, I think a hard decision is to always kind of run to that cone and then always kind of sprint back. And That's the decision that I can make. And I, observing players, I think in my career, only probably 5% of players consistently get to the cone and make that decision to do that. And some other the decisions I, I would make was... Like, for example, in the probably back six years of my career, I'd always have an ice bath at home after training. There's lots of friction to stop you from doing it. Right, got to get up, got to find some ice, got to bring it back, put it in my freezer, got to wait till night time, got to run the bath, rather go to sleep and get an ice bath. But there's lots of little decisions around there that are like micro hard ones and you've got the final one, getting a bath of ice for 10 minutes. But I firmly believe doing that... Consistently allow me to age 36, 37, and 38. I'm, I'm playing my best rugby. And I think they're consistent decisions that we can make. And I think if you really think about your own job and your own performance, if you're self aware enough, you'll quite easily recognise the easy and hard yeah, decisions yeah. we can make. You know, like I think a hard decision for a lot of people these days is, is probably switching off from work. I think the easy decision sometimes is to like keep a laptop on, not being particularly productive, but the hard decision is to turn it off, go for a walk and then spend some time with your family. Those yeah. decisions are around us all, all, all the time, but particularly in professional sport, I think they're, they're very recognisable, they're very definite and,
4: and they certainly add up over time. You've been retired now for a few years. Yeah. But those habits now, you said, they just become part of your identity, who you are. So what are the kind of habits that you adopted when you were an elite athlete that you're using now in in this second life?
1: I think, first of all, it's getting up early. I still get up early and I train every morning. I think it's really essential for me. Having two pints of water in the morning is is essential part for me. Always delivering on my word. I think that's a big thing for me now, uh, making sure I write to-do list before I go to bed, making sure I finish that to-do list. I think in the best teams I've worked in, people always deliver on the word. When I went into the real world a bit, I was amazed by how many people just don't understand the concept of if they
4: say I'm going to do something and then not actually doing it. So how do you handle that one? Because it must be a frustration for you.
1: Yeah, it's a frustration. It's sure it is frustration, but I, I think you've just got to... Just gently poke people with it, you know, saying, "Can you get back to me on this?" You said you'd do that. It's about yeah. that. you've got to be like someone told me the, the the steel fist in a velvet glove. You've just got to, you've got to tell the truth, but you have to be a, a little bit different. How you do it within a rugby field as well. One other thing I think, which I would take from my career, which I, I do do now, certainly in games, is I think in life we all make mistakes, we all make errors, we all make take an easy decision from time to time. We're human beings. No, nobody is perfect. But I think the biggest thing I, I believe, and I've certainly did this on a rugby pitch, was never doubling up. Should never double up on errors. So let's say I, I drop a ball in a game. Then for me, it'd be a cardinal sin to do that again in the game. I, and I try to go for a run of 10 games without dropping a ball. Yeah. If I miss a tackle, then I'm going to try go the full game without missing a tackle. So For me, the the doubling up on errors and mistakes in life, I think it's just key because we all have blips. You know, you might have a blip where you you don't go to the gym where you don't want to, Uh, you miss it because you're tired. You go eat some fast food instead of doing something healthy. You, You know, you stay watching Netflix instead of going to bed. That's all right on its own, I think, you know, when it's a blip. But then if we compound that and do it again... That, for me, is heading you in the wrong direction. You sh- you're compounding something else. So that's been huge for me, I reckon, that. And and that mindset really came from a lesson I learned. I reckon in 2000, in at Huddersfield, I was playing for the Bradford Bulls against Huddersfield. And I, I dropped two balls in a row. And then I got the warning, do that again, and you're off. And then I went down the smallest short side, which in Woodbury you know, it's like a blind side. Yeah. There was about two metres, and I got dragged into touch. Next thing I know, I'm off. I'm sat on the bench, and I'm pretty pissed with myself. But when you're a bit younger, you want to blame other people. I'm thinking, it's not my fault. But then after a while, you think, well, what, what can I do better about this next time? And I thought to myself... Everybody makes a mistake, you know, even the best players I play with, they make mistakes. But it's that doubling up that you just can't do. You just can't do that. If you want to be an elite player, you're going to have mistakes from time to time. You're going to make errors. No one plays a perfect game. But the ones I watch, they don't They don't compound them. They don't double them up. Yeah. And I think it's a really good kind of attitude to have with, with
4: everything we do, do in life. So let's zero in on that then, because like you say, yeah. we all make mistakes. Take us into your head when you've just dropped a ball. What do you do to move on from that and get yourself into that mindset of, I'm going to nail it next time? So I, I think to myself, right, I have to start thinking positively, get rid of all negative thoughts. And
1: for me, it's to get my hands on the ball as soon as possible. So to get it completely out of my mind straight away. So if I dropped it in, say, tackle two, we get six tackles in rugby league i really try to make sure the next time in that set you know the next 30 seconds i get to touch the ball again which is a bit uh weird in rugby league you only touch it normally once once a set not twice a set so for me it's about shutting out negative thoughts and then taking yourself forward with a positive action straight away off the back of it's to go back out where you just made that mistake and for me that allowed me then to move on from it straight away so say i missed a tackle the next
4: tackle I'd make no matter what, you know, if my my life depended on it, I'd make that tackle. That leads us into the area then of the phrase psychological safety, that in high-performing cultures, you have a sense that mistakes happen, but people own them. And then you can learn from them so much faster. In poor-performing cultures where you don't feel safe enough to say, that was my fault, nobody learns because it's always pointing the finger and blaming. So tell us about, you've been part of the Bradford and then the Leeds success story. Tell us how important psychological safety was there.
1: I've not heard that before, psychological safety, but I I absolutely believe in that 100%. And I think... At the Rhinos, we had a great environment that. People were doing up to things. No one would a bit shirk it. No one would point the finger. We might do, some people might do initially, but then they're doing it afterwards. You know, sometimes you have that, don't you? You have yeah, a bit of, yeah. like, mm, bit of pride, but then you're doing it again straight after that. I think a really good example of not being able to do this, I think it happened to us in the 2008 World Cup because yeah. I always look back on that now. And I think the rivalry we have between... Leeds and Saints, we underestimated how deep and bitter that rivalry was. Yeah. And I think that deep and bitter rivalry, I believe, led to an environment where nobody wanted to show any weakness. Nobody from Saints wanted to show any weakness to the Rhinos players. And I knew for a fact, right, that I didn't want to show any weakness to the Saints players because for three years, we've just been the most bitter rivals, you know, brutal Horrible rivalry, great rivalry for sport. And I look back on my time now and I, you know, if I could change one thing, I, I go back and just be more vulnerable and just go, Do you know what? I don't care about the Leeds Saints rivalry. I made that mistake and I'm, I'm going to make mistakes. And I, or, I don't know the answer to this. You know, when we're in a video review, I I don't know the answer to it. And that, for me, that psychological safety, I think was missing from that England World Cup team because, not because players are arrogant, not because players have got big egos. I think it was missing because of a bit of rivalry between the two, because we just did not want to show uh, or budge an inch or blink. It was like a staring contest. We didn't want to blink. Whereas, you know, the opposite was that, I imagine the Saints... Uh, when they're with themselves, they can all own up to it. And when we're certainly at the Rhinos, no one had any problem owning up to mistakes. You know, I'm, I'm admitting to problems. And I think we often won grand finals because the, the team was really kind of egoless that no one was really bothered who got the credit. Everybody knew what they had to do and they just gave themselves up to the team and what they wanted to, what yeah. they wanted to do, you know, bring the best version of yourself for the team within it. And I, and I think just massively helped us. And I think if you look at the core of the leaders within that team at I think, yeah, we've got some, we've got pride in our performance. You know, that is a bit of ego, pride in how well you play. But it doesn't override the fact that you have to give yourself up to the group and you have to commit to a certain number of actions that are going to be more beneficial to the group than they're going to be of benefit to you. And I, and I think we've got that right balance
4: with the Rhinos. So tell us about that, because this is always an intriguing part of your story when I think about it, that you've gone from being one of the big dogs at Bradford to so then going into Leeds is like a big sign in, a lot of noise around you arriving. And yet you're going into quite a strong culture already, and you're not going to be the captain. You've already got established leaders in there. So when you talk about an egoless group, you've obviously had to do something there to, subsume your own ego to go into it.
1: I knew going in that it was going to be a different culture, but I I had no ambitions whatsoever on on being captain. I I wanted to go in and just collaborate with Kev Simfield who was a captain, collaborate with the other leaders and bring my version of leadership and hopefully it complement everybody else's. Captaincy is a title, you know I'm not I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in being able to lead the group with the other leaders in the best way possible and, and adding to what they've got already. And if we can do that, we can win. If I'm going there into that group 2006 and thinking, well, I, I want to be captain and it's just a total wrong thing to do. Yeah, it just yeah. goes against my values uh, as a person. And I think... If you use me and Kev as an example, I think we dovetail each other beautifully. You, you know, so I'm quite emotional and quite, let's just do this. Let's get this done and all plus with detail where Kev is like methodical and, and detail oriented. And I think the power of us both together. And not having any ego about it was just huge for the, for us and the team. I think, it, and then we've got all the other leaders around us who all contribute, of yeah. all who all, all behave. You know, for example, working exceptionally hard a, along the way. I think it was just powerful. Um, and I think when I look back now, I think when you're in it, sometimes you don't realise it, and then when you look back, you, you think, you know, shit, that was that was a good group to work with. You know, egoless.
3: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
4: And what you've also tapped into there is that power of the cognitive diversity that you bring your strength of emotion and yeah. and impulsiveness, Kev brings methodical, karma, diligence what were the other roles in that group that you think helped make it such a powerful culture?
1: I, I think you had probably a number of other players. So who else would you put in there? You put someone like uh, Rob Burrows in, Danny Maguire, Kylie Lulowai, Jimmy Jones, Gareth Ellis, Keith Senior at times in there. The, we just seem to have a conveyor belt of other players who, who were coming and they were contributing their own way. And, and, and they weren't bothered about being a captain. They had no desires on being a captain, but they could lead. They could be in a game and they, they could lead, or they say the right thing, or they do something yeah. that inspire people, or they were bought into hard work. I think the group was a really exceptionally hard working group in a team that's going to be a dynasty. it's certainly rubbly cap kind of two people out of the 25, 30 who exhibit yeah. great leadership behaviors. Okay, you need like a kind of critical mass, and I, I think once you get to seven or eight or right. nine, I reckon that's enough to drag everybody else along or look, these are the standards. This is how it's going to be. We always had, through good signings, you know, like Gareth Ellis coming in and out uh, or players who've been there a long time, that we just kept that critical mass that could always listen to what the coach said, worked exceptionally hard, um, weren't bothered about their ego. And I, and I think having that continuous critical mass allowed us to have continued success. And I think you saw that as players began to retire a bit at a time that it became harder and harder for the club to keep
4: that up. What kind of things would you do to integrate a new signing into that culture to let them know that you don't bring your ego in here, you park it at the door... And these are the standards. Give us some yeah, insights.
1: Yeah, so I, I think it's just about showing them through uh, the way that you train, you know, staying after training, doing doing more work after training. So that this is the norm. Okay. When training finishes, we're still gonna do a little bit extra. We want you on board with this. Do you want to buy into doing this? Making sure they feel part of the group, making an effort to get to know people, I is huge. You're getting to build good relationships with them. But I think doing I think it's behaviour. What it'll boil down to is, is the way that you behave at training with like your work ethic, but then also owning up to mistakes in a video review or saying, do you know what, my fault. I didn't mean to do that, but it's my fault. And I think showing them that that's the norm. And if you buy into to this, we'll be successful. If not, you'll have probably your two or three years here, whatever your contract says, and you'll be looking elsewhere after that because everyone's kind of buying into the way you do it. And just, well, the time you've got to be direct with people and tell them if they're not doing it, this is how we do it. So give us an example of that. 2008, I think we were, our goal was to defend our title, won it in 2007. But we were midway through 2008 season, we're losing games. And one of the reasons why we're losing games is backchatting to referees. So backchatting to referees, not like football, concede uh, points, normally concede penalties. But the reason why we're backchatting to referees was when we simulate a game, at training, we'd have a coach in the middle refereeing. Yeah. So... The coach make a bad decision of a referee. And you know what lads are like at training, taking a piss, having a go at him. But without knowing, they're creating an habit, bad habit, which is costing us game. So we lose another game. We have a video review on the Monday about it. And head coach points out this behaviour and says, look, it's got to stop. And when it stops is in training. You know, the reason why we're back chance to referees in games is because we do it in training. So it stops going forward. No one's allowed to do it. So everyone agree? Loads, you know, it's like loads of nodding heads. Does anyone disagree? Room falls silent. So we go downstairs, we start training, we train for about 60 minutes, then we get to our simulated game. You know, five minutes into the simulated game, one of, one of our better players actually, one of our leaders that day, the coach who was referee made a bad decision and he started giving him some verbal and like everyone hears it. And I'm thinking, oh, well, one of the assistant coach, the head coach will pick this up. Five seconds goes by. Nothing, 10 seconds goes by. So I, I like stop the game, full game, and I pull the player up. I said, You know, what do you think you're doing? I said, Like, we spoke at length up there, what our standards are going forward. First training said, You broke it. And I said, It's unacceptable for you. You know, you're a leader within this team. So he was a bit taken back by it. We had a bit we had an heated argument about it, you yeah. know, a bit of denial. And I am saying, like, Listen, mate, you've done it. We've all seen it. You, you, basically, you've done it. Don't do it. That's all I'm saying. You know, that's all I'm saying is don't do it. It needs to be said. So, we went, yeah, you know, all right, okay, apologize to the group, but me and him didn't chat for a bit. We continued that training session, but I, I think that showed a clear marker to everybody, right, that these are the standards we've got, and if you're going to cross them, then something's going to get s- said about it, y- you yeah. know. So, and, and I think that was probably a bit of my role w- within that team is that I, I would try to lead through behaviors, but if someone needs telling because they're not doing something, then I, I'm going to tell you, but it's not because. I want to fall out with you just because I'm trying to do it for the greater good of the group. You know? yeah. That's what I'm trying to do with it. So,
4: But that's one of the things that I think is one of your superpowers, that you were often really brilliant at doing that, of challenging behaviours that fell outside the norm. So what's the best way of giving feedback to somebody?
1: I think I've developed in this area since I, I think I could be firing brimstone and, I, and I've kind of realised that... It's not the best way to do things all the time. I think the, one of the best things to do is you've got to be timely with it. I think if something happens, and I think you need to be on it quite quickly. I don't think, you know, waiting a long time for things to happen is not a good thing to do. In sport, you can be very, very direct with people, but I get that's a bit different in yeah. the kind of real world. So, you know, I've done a lot of work on this is that you, you, when you give feedback to someone, you've got to ask them if they actually want feedback. And get them to buy into it, and then you've got to give them some data points. What loads of people do, people f- fluff around it, so they don't get the message across. So they they fluff around what they're going to say, and it comes pretty vague because they feel uncomfortable doing it. Where well, it's better just being direct and just getting straight to the point, and just seeing what you've got to say about it, and then asking them how they feel about it. I think that's the
4: steps of doing it. Talks was about pressure. So when you're coming into playoff season. This is where the pressure ramps up. It's all it's win or lose now. Live yeah, up, uh, death or glory.
1: Yeah, it's death or glory. Do or die in, in rugby league terms. Yeah. and I I love I love that part of it. I mean, that is just the best, right? That they're all the pressures on, and you get to watch other teams crumble under the pressure, under the weight of expectation. I always look to the playoff series not as pressure, but it's just the opportunity to show everybody how good we are as a team. And I think that's just a great way of looking at it. Whereas yeah. people go, oh, it's a big high pressure game, this, you know, I'm not sure what we've got about it. Hang on a minute. but like, We've worked really hard for this all year. It's 11 months into it. We all believe in each other. We're all trusting each other. Let's just go out there and just take this, up, chew this opportunity up. And I think, you know, from my experiences at the Bulls, being in and around it and thinking about, how playoffs work, you know, I had that playoff experience and I realised by the time I got to the Rhinos, right, one of the key differences in the playoffs is you just can't go in there wanting to win it because every other club's doing that, right, every other club that goes into the playoffs wants to win Super League, right, they want to win the Grand Final and it's a good motivator but in the high performance environment of sport, you always need more than that. I think you need more than that. And for me, I would always try connectors with a kind of human story in, a, in and around it, you know, or a more emotional story. So 2007, like Smithy was leaving and I, Tony Smith, the coach. And I thought this is the hook we need to get hold of as a team, you know, saying like, yeah, we want to win it, but we want to send him out on a winner. And I think doing great achievements for other people. Because of somebody else, people buy into that, I think. I, oh, yeah. I think, you know, it, it lifts people above and beyond and it brings teams together. And I reckon we were great at doing that. I think that's one of the reasons why we had success in the grand finals time and time again, because we'd hook into something bigger than winning the trophy. You know, people and doing it for your friend and and these kind of reasons are bigger than just winning a trophy. And I reckon by doing that, you just get more out of people. I've seen it. It just happens. So give us an example then of when you've seen it work at its best. So I reckon probably in our final year, 2015, there's myself, Kylie and Kev leaving. And we're busted, I think, at the end of 2015. We set our goal to win the treble. We, We win the Challenge Cup. Okay, and then we go on a run of losing, we lose think three games in a in a row, but still managed to finish uh, top of the league by beating Huddersfield. But then we've got probably five or six our best players out, and then we start to use the the fact that us three are going and Brian Mack jumps on it. Brian McDermott was great at that, he really understood that there's a it's got to be something bigger than yourself. Jumped on the facts, I've not used it all year, but we're on it now. You know, you want to send these kind of three players out. They've been here for the last ten years. kev has been here for twenty years. That send them out as winners, and you can see, it, it, you, can, you can feel a room when people go. I'm having a piece of that. You know that that yeah, that, yeah. that means you. You've been in rooms. How many you know sporting teams? You yeah. can see when like the dominoes click on everybody's eyes, and they go, "Yeah, I'm having a bit of that. Yeah, I love that too. That that means I'm going to just going to do a little bit more. And I, and I think it really showed then 2015 half time we're beating Wigan in the grand finals, completely the treble. They come out and blitz us. We we end up behind, but we just dug in, got our try back. And the last ten minutes, I reckon we were playing on fumes, you know, the team's busted. And what we were playing on, I I think was that drive and emotion to try to do the right thing by three players who who've been in the team and probably spent hours and hours building an individual relationship with all those people in yep. the team. Allowed us to do it. You know, got us across the line, I think.
4: Brilliant. I love that. Cause this is a big theme in sports coaching at the minute and set around theming, giving, giving a team a theme for a season. Yeah. Where I'm interested in those areas, like how you get that sweet spot of it, because I've been in dressing rooms where you get people standing up and telling their story or you show them footage of like their wives or partners telling you how proud they are. And I've been in environments where that can almost over arouse the group where there's too much emotion rather than the, the cold logic you want. But I've also heard of examples, and you've been involved in some of them, where you actually get that balance perfectly right. Yeah. What's been your experience of how to yeah. do that well?
1: It's true that I think timing's important with this. I really believe, I think if you go back to 2007, when we were in the grand final, and we we're massive underdogs against St. Helens. I mean, they, they were an outstanding team. And we did it the night before. So I think if you did, so the night before we sat around in a circle talk about what does this game mean to us you know what not technically but emotionally spiritually you know what does this game mean to you each as individuals and i just think that the night before in any kind of sporting arena is the perfect time to do it if you do it on a monday It's great, but you're gonna be fired up on Tuesday and you play Saturday. Okay, you do it the day of the game, and it's just too much. It's too it like drives you into that overload. Overload. I I think for me. 24 hours before is a great time to be quite emotional about why you want to do something, especially if it's going to be a long kind of session. I think if it's going to be short and punchy, someone three minutes to to connect with you, I think that's a good way of doing it just before you go out to play, you know, a couple of hours before. But certainly if it's something that's going to take 15, 30, 45 minutes an hour and everyone's going to connect to it, then that needs to be done at least 24 hours before, but no more than 48 in my experience with that because I think you lose a bit of residual impact with it, and I, I think you can set a theme at the start of the season, but it's really difficult to carry that theme out all, all the way through the year, thirty, 30 weeks long, with that. Yeah. So for me, that there be kind of the sweet spots I reckon within sport to do that.
4: So what would you tap into then? Because I'm always interested in the fact that you just kept coming back year after year. There was a relentlessness that you're always there in the finals. So what were you tapping into, like, say, on the 7th, 8th, nine, ten time you go into grand finals?
1: Yeah, you're always, always trying to find that different kind of personal slant on it. And usually, for me, each kind of grand final, because it's a year in between, you generally find a story, you find, like, a human person story. And for me, I'd be always thinking about where's our hook going to be with this one? What's the hook going to be, personally, that maybe I can get hold of and then try get everybody else hold of it, too, and then if we get enough of us doing it, then emotionally we'll, we we can lift, we can lift and get there. We might be busted, might be tired doing it. So I think it's about having eyes up on actively looking for it, I think about four or five weeks out, because I think genuinely because sports are intense and a season is so up and down that you will find something that you go, ah, that that's the one. But it's not something I think we you think, I want to think about that. And then an hour later you get it. That doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a period of time thinking about things along the way with it. And
4: how much of that would be we want to prove somebody wrong versus how much of it is we want to prove ourselves right? You know,
1: wanting to prove somebody wrong can be used in such a positive way, you know, because we're going to use use their opinion of us to achieve greatness. We're going to actually use your negative comments to springboard us into doing something amazing. And, And, you know, I met a really great guy, Paul Sewell, like the Richard Branson of all, basically. He said to me, pissed off people change the world. And it's true, right? It's absolutely true. I thought, that's a great thing. I wish I'd have had that when I was playing. I thought, it's brilliant. But it's true, right? And I think, oh, how do you get a group of people motivated? Well, I tell them that you can't do something. So just tell them that they can't do that. And then you can use that in a positive way. I think you can use that as a springboard. And when you've finished and you've done it, you just thank them for it. So thank you for that. (laughs) And you've just turned it into a
4: kind of real positive. So let's get to the end of your career then. You've sort of, you've retired, you've lionized within the world of rugby league. you are seen as a great leader. What do you do in that second act? How did you start planning for that?
1: I, first of all, I started doing a master's, you know, in, in sports business administration. I thought that's the d- direction that I, I want to go in. And then, you know, I want to be someone who's an administrator in sport. And I went to work for Hulkia. and um, things didn't work out for me there. I, you know, I tried my best to be a director of rugby and being an administrator. And what I realised, probably about six or nine months into this, I just thought, this is not me. This is not what I, I like to do. I'm, I'm not in the middle of it enough. I made some mistakes along the way. I should—I I always thought I was quite build, good at building relationships up with people. Didn't do enough of that in my time. Okay, I tried to be a bit standoffish when I should have just gone into it like I normally do, and I realised that. In my life, I, I love diversity. You know what? The one thing I love is diversity. That's why I thought I love my rugby career, because it was always different. We're always doing different things, different occasions. So I thought, you know what? I, I'm going to do some things differently. I, I, I work better when I work for myself. I think, you know, dipped into, you got sent me on the journey, which I'm always thankful for, into like motivational speaking. But then I, what I want to do was expand that out into Really creating habits, really changing the way people behave. So I kind of y- used some of the aspects, you uh, principles that you pointed out to me that allowed me to be successful. Added some others in, and just created like a, a coaching mentoring program that was not full of waffle and just real, honest, and started getting involved with that. And it, brilliant. and I just, it's been brilliant for me, honestly. You know, because I remember being sat in the old car in my in my little office, and I just thought. I screwed my language, what the fuck am I doing here why why am I here? i like I'm not happy. this do not suit me being in here you know i'm I'm not bringing the best version of myself out. I, I need to do something about it. Yeah. you know I had that probably back to the bus again. I reckon the easiest decision for me would just stay there, use my name, collect my money, just get on with things, or I can start to make a difference. I can start to do something that I want to do. And I thought, I like being around people. I like watching people grow. I think I can
4: connect with people. I've got a bit of a story here. Let's just go for it and let's see what happens. So there we go. So if there's anyone listening to this that maybe doesn't, is not interested in sport or they're not thinking of it in that application, what are your top three tips that... You teach people now as a coach, as a consultant that they can use?
1: My top three tips would be firstly, take personal responsibility to deliver on your word. So, deliver on your word to yourself, as in the terms of the work that you're going to do, you know, but then deliver on your word to the people that you're either leading or managing because if you do that you build trust people respect you and you're in control of that basically you know and if you say well i'm too busy and i can't do that that's because you you haven't learned the ability to say no and if you take control of that and learn the ability to say no you'll be able to deliver on on your word all the time the the next one for me we have to be kind right there's a difference between being kind and being nice right They're, they're two different things so for me being nice is if someone's doing something wrong, just going, I'm not going to say it because I don't want to work their feelings. That's just being nice. But actually saying to somebody, you know, you, you need to improve and, and do things better. That's, that's being kind to them because they're going to develop off the back of it. And I think we have to be kind in our lives and then don't double up on blips and errors. Like, and it, except that you're going to have blips and errors because that's life. I think lots of people are really, really hard on themselves. They're, they're too hard on themselves and they get frustrated and uh, and they get wound up and they get down because they made a little mistake or they had a little blip or, or they had a little error. That's life. That is life, right? What champions do is to just do not double them up. Do not double up on your blips and errors. And again, those three things that I've spoken about there, people are in charge of, you know, you you can take personal responsibility to do this and you take personal responsibility to deliver on your word, to make sure you don't double up on errors and that you're actually kind to people and you can do all that.
4: That's a brilliant place to finish that, that part of our conversation, Jamie. So, and I want to go into our fire round. Right. Yeah. So what are your three non-negotiable behaviors that you and everyone around you has to buy into. So f-
1: for me, we've probably talked about these again. I yeah. think my, my, for me, my integrity is just do the right thing by people. There's no right way to do the wrong thing, basically. And I and I think that's the absolute key with it. Take personal responsibility for your decisions and your mistakes. Don't be blaming other people when when you you know it's down to you. And just be honest. I think just be honest with yourself and, and other people around you. So they're the kind of thing around me. You know, do the right thing by by people. Take personal responsibility for things. Just try to be honest. You know,
4: if you could go back to any mo- one moment in your life, what would it be and why?
1: I'm going to go back to the 2008 World Cup and I'm going to, when we when we lose our first game I'm against Papua New Guinea, I'm going to stand up and say, do you know what, I made these mistakes in this game, I apologise to the group, didn't mean to do it, I think we just all need to be a little bit more vulnerable about how we do it and put our rivalry to the side and I'd love to see where that doing that would take that group, you know, I'd really like to do that, it kind of sits with me a bit, that 2008 World Cup because there's some things I know I could have done better about it and I'd... Can't do anything, I ain't got the time machine, Damien, but I'd like (laughs) to be able to do it. I'd come back with
4: you there. Yeah, that's exactly what I (laughs) spoke about. (laughs) How important is legacy to you?
1: For me, if I continue to do the right thing by people, if I deliver on my word and be honest, I think that will look after itself. I'd rather my legacy be that anyone who bumped into me knew those three things about me and they didn't know me. If they didn't know me about rugby player, they'd go, you know what, I reckon he will do, do the right thing by me. If I asked him to do something, he'd do it and he'd be honest by me. I, I'd like that to be, you know, whenever I when I leave, leave this uh, my earth that people say that about me. Not, not my legacy around a rugby player. That That's more important to me.
4: What advice would you give to a teenage Jamie just starting out? I'd say,
1: say yes more. I think as I've grown older, I've realised that saying yes takes you to far more exciting places and far more exciting things and I really believe when I was younger I was a little bit close-minded I don't want to do that don't want to do this probably that self-doubt in a lot of things I did but now as I'm older I just say yes to things and then kind of you just work out later or it'll be exciting won't it and it, it does you know like and I think that'd be the one piece of advice I'd say just just say yes a bit more
4: and finally what's your one golden rule for living a high performance life
1: Always, always, always
4: do what you say you're going to do. That's the big one for me. Just, that's the one. Brilliant. And I know your dad passed away a few years ago now, but given that we started this story talking about that phone call from Halifax bus station, what did he think of where you eventually got to once you got off that bus? Well, my
1: dad was a really, really quiet person, you know, and I could tell only I ever once could I see that, I think it had an impact with them and I think it was after the two thousand Challenge Cup final I got to play in that, and he, he had a, a little tear in his eye. You know, after after the game, I could tell it, it was a really proud moment for him, and, and it, it meant a lot to him that. His son, you know, no one thought I was going to make it professional. I'd actually played in a Challenge Cup final. i won a Challenge Cup final. Now my dad used to organise a trip for 90 kids at Stanley, along with some other coaches, to go down to Wembley every year on buses. So we got a bit of an affinity with the Challenge yeah. Cup as, as a kid growing up. And uh, for me, that was probably the only time that I, I saw that Um in my dad. I will finish with something else, though, with my dad, that my dad inspired me, okay, on on his deathbed, right, 24th of November, 2011, got diagnosed, with stage four terminal lung cancer, and I was in Florida, at this point, when I get the phone call, and like, my world falls to bits, and like, imagine being on holiday, and you get that call, because he went to, the doctor saying, he, you know, he had a, sore shoulder but he thought it was because he used to work making false teeth but he said go for an x-ray went for an x-ray oncologist seen it and told him you know what they said to him "said you've got stage four lung cancer you've got three months left to live so my dad went on the phone call, like, I'm in pieces, and my dad went, listen, it's going to be all right, because I'm just not having that, I'm not having, like, a doctor tell me I've got three months left to live, watch this, you know, trust me, it will be all right, enjoy your holiday, I've lived longer than that. So my dad lived for 22 months, not three months, eight times longer nearly than the doctor said he was going to do, right, like, unbelievable, and during that time, he went through, you know, treatment, which I'm sure most people will know, if they know someone has got cancer, I think will look back in hundred years' time and think, that was torture, you know." Know, like through the uh, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, never, never once m- mourned a word. Did not mourn one word through it. So I thought when my, my dad passed away, two thousand and uh, when two thousand thirteen, I thought I'm like thirty six in my career now. Nearly thirty six. Got two years left. You know what? I'm gonna. And a lot of people questioned me. You know where, where's he at? He should be retiring. And I thought, you know what? My dad had the best mindset. He refused to let anybody like box him in. You know like say if you to let the oncologist say oh, you 've got three months left left to live i 'm not having that for one attitude that is to have so I applied that attitude to the last couple of years of my career you know i won 't let a pundit. A player gone before me, a coach or anyone dictate, you know, what I could do in the backstage of my career. I firmly believe by him doing that, the last couple of years, I played my best rugby yeah, as, a, as a player, you know, I was like the Leeds Rhinos player a year twice, nearly won the Man of Steel in the dream team. It all came together for me and that for me showed out of a really crappy negative situation, can draw a positive out of it. And for me, it inspired me right at the death. Wow,
4: what a yeah. brilliant legacy. Yeah,
1: huge, right? It's huge.
4: Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. But we'll do a slightly different rap than the usual high performance episodes because I don't have my wingman Jake alongside me. But I think there are some really important lessons there that Jamie shared with us that we can reflect on and take into our own lives. The first idea of being the best at the things that require no talent is a brilliant one. We can all be mindful of our timekeeping. How early do we arrive for meetings? How well prepared are we? our manners, whether we give a handshake, eye contact, whether we say hello to people, the preparation we do for any meeting or event that we're facing. The second one is that idea that I told Jamie on the podcast that I incorporated into my own world once uh, he shared it with me many years ago about dividing our decisions up into hard versus easy ones. You know, that example that he said of when you go out for a run, you don't have Rocky music playing, in your ears when you're going about your day-to-day business, so why do you need it when you're out for a run? And if you make those kind of decisions, the hard versus easy ones, and then reflect at the end of the day and weigh up which list is longer, when you start making more of the hard decisions, the more confidence that you give yourself, it's like you're building a wall and brick by brick, you're laying the foundations of knowing that you can do the tough stuff when it really counts. And then the final one is, that topic of trust is something that comes up so often when people talk about teams, you know, the best performing teams have high levels of trust and Jamie described it in one of the most succinct ways I've ever heard this idea of just do what you say you're going to do. So if you make a commitment, follow through and do it. And the more that you do that, the more people then come to trust you. So again, in moments of adversity of tough times, they know that they can rely on you to follow through and do exactly what you've said you've done. It's a real privilege to have sat down with Jamie, and I hope that you'll listen to our next episode of the High Performance Rugby League World Cup Specials. I will look forward to speaking to you then.
0: Well, I really hope you enjoyed that. I would love to know what you think. Please ping Damien a message. Um, He's at Liquid Thinker on Instagram. I know he would love your feedback and your response to this conversation. But most of all, please just spread the learnings you're taking from this. There is so much gold. There's so much magic. There's so much from these incredible people and it needs to be shared. It's great that you've heard it and you've reacted to it and you've thought about it. But what about the hundreds of thousands of people that would benefit from it? If you can just pass it on to one person, And they do the same. And then they do the same. Imagine the impact we could have. So please do spread the lessons and the learnings from these podcasts. Thanks to the whole team for their hard work. Thanks to Jamie Peacock for making the time to join us. Thanks to Professor Hughes for being brilliant. And remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. And remain humble, curious, and empathetic. We'll see you soon.